morning. Uh, this is the first time with us. My name is Andrew. I'm the preaching pastor for Anchor Church. We will be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table over there. Feel free to grab one. Uh, as you're turning to the words of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, I will pray for us and we'll go ahead and dig in. Uh, King Jesus, this is your day. Uh, and as we approach this text and as we approach uh, your word, I just pray that our hearts and our minds uh, would be continuously uh, reshaped by the reality of your gospel, reshaped by the reality of your love for us, reshaped by the reality of your omnipotence and your omnipresence uh, and your, your, your omnicompetence to accomplish uh, what you're, you set out to accomplish, uh, that you'd move in our lives and we just grow and grow and grow in a trust and dependence on you both uh, in the world and in ourselves and in our church and in our families and in our friend groups uh, and wherever you might have us, that, that more and more we would come to depend on the fact that you've finished everything and that we're yours. Uh, and as a result, we can continue to turn from sin and turn to you, not so that you will love us, but because you've loved us and that we continue to see the world more and more and more uh, as it is in reality, not as it's been necessarily presented to us. So Jesus, I just pray as we dig into this text uh, you would reveal yourself to us, and we would love you more as a people, and we love others more as a people, because we have come together today in your name. And we do these things in your name and for your glory, Jesus Christ. Amen. Uh, so in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be starting in verse 10. Uh, next week, we'll have a guest preacher. A friend will be here. Uh, then after that, we're going to dig into 2 Corinthians. Uh, now, 2 Corinthians, 2 Thessalonians... Uh, all these books that have a two in front of them, often Second uh, Timothy, uh, these books don't necessarily get as much attention as the ones with the one in front of it for whatever reason, uh, but they are very good books nonetheless. Second uh, Corinthians is, uh, in my opinion, an underpreached, underread, and underappreciated book uh, as far as the church is concerned, as far as my own life is concerned, really. Second uh, Corinthians is super important for us because Second Corinthians shows us how to live in our world, the world we live in now, uh, with a gospel worldview, how to live understanding the reality that Jesus Christ is God himself, that Jesus Christ set aside his divine rights and entered into human history to save us and to redeem this place, not because of what we have done and because of who we are or because of our position or because of what other people think about us or any of those things, but for his glory. And then we get to be God's people, not because we're awesome, but because He is awesome. Uh, and He hasn't just forgiven us for our sins, but He's loved us and given us life. And we're still living here on this world that He's in the process of redeeming. And, and 2 Corinthians helps us to understand how to live in a world that even has things like suffering and hardship. Uh, even in the wake of the reality of who Jesus is and what He's done. It's a gift to us if we can take those texts very seriously. Now, 2 Corinthians, because there's a two in the front, uh, it's a second letter to a church. Now, 1 Corinthians, another wonderful and amazing letter of the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, 1 Corinthians is a really a letter that isn't about how to live with that gospel worldview, but is a correction of their worldview, that their, their understanding of reality is busted and broken. And he writes this letter to them to help them understand that. And so the text we're looking at today helps us understand a little bit about this church that we're going to really spend a lot of time with in the coming weeks, uh, but we're going to start in verse 10, and we're going to look at two things as we meet the Corinthians. What's their problem and how Paul actually answers that problem? Uh, and I think as we dig in, we'll find that their problem is probably not unique to a church in Corinth, and honestly probably not unique to Seattle or the church in America, but 
the church that lives on this planet that Jesus is in the business and process of redeeming. So here we are in uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, this is important because if you've ever read 1 Corinthians, Paul has some very strong things to say to the Corinthian church because they're getting off the rails. He'll even allude to those things in 2 Corinthians. He'll say, uh, I wrote you that really nasty, hard letter to read so that when I came to you, we could just hang out and have a good time because you guys have some work to do. Maybe nasty is the wrong word. I take that one back. It's not a nasty letter. It's a really loving letter, but he has some hard words for these Corinthian people. But what I want you to hear is this. He doesn't just berate them, and he doesn't just yell at them, and he doesn't call them names. He starts right here. I appeal to you, brothers. I'm writing this letter to you because I love you. You're family. Brothers, Adelphoi in Greek. It can be brothers. It means family. I'm writing to you, family. Literally brothers, but he's, he's referring to them. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, name has a big deal back then. I mean, name, we can, you can go and change your name to a symbol. You can go and change your name to whatever you want it to be. You can do whatever, right? It's 2016. Change your name. Who cares? Uh, a name in this time, in this culture, is representative of the person, right? So when he says, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's really, he's really invoking Jesus here because we're together and we're a family because of Jesus, We're a family because what Jesus has done on the cross. We're a family because Jesus rose from the dead. We're a family because Jesus saved us from ourselves and to life in him. And I I say this often and constantly, and I feel this way, especially when we we read little little theology class, we do little Bible studies at like 6 in the morning. Whenever I look around the room, uh, and I think anyone who goes to one feels the same way, we're looking like, why are we all here at 6 in the morning if not for Jesus Christ? What brings us together to drink coffee and to be familial in this way, to be family together, to, to, to love each other and to spend time together and to laugh together. You know, some of us, you know, we're, we're, you know we come from all different places and all different backgrounds. And, and some of us, honestly, even in this room, in this very small congregation right now, have absolutely nothing in common but the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing. But we can still love each other and serve each other and care for each other because we're here in the name of Jesus Christ. There's, there's a bond and a unity deeper than blood that stretches across time and across the world because what Jesus did, and I don't know if you ever had this experience, you're, you're in that airport, or you're meeting someone, you know, I've been really blessed as a pastor to meet all kinds of guys who are, who are church planners, who are nationals in Africa and India and whatnot. I have very little in common on a, on a worldly level with guys planning churches in India. And yet, pretty soon you're laughing and you're, it turns out there's commonalities in life. You, you know, friends are friends, and kids are kids, and stories are stories. But, but something that cut through all of everything isn't just the human experience, but our experience in Christ Jesus. And, and so as we hear everything that Paul's about to say to them, we need to hear that this is what he's front-loading everything with. He's front-loading everything with this reality. And you have to understand that the, first, that the church he's writing to here in Corinth is messed up in so many ways. That we don't even have time to... It took him 16 chapters to deal with everything that he had to deal with with them. And I got 30... I have got 35 minutes to do so, right? But, but right on the onset, we can see the problem at work. So, so listen to him again. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree. 
Now, now that doesn't mean, you all agree, and this should be true of us, now this doesn't mean uh, we have to agree on our favorite color. Or you might not know what your favorite color is, and you have to think about it for a while. Someone else might hate that color once you arrive at what that color is. That's not what we're talking about. Uh, we're not talking about what you should do for a living or what kind of car you should drive or what neighborhood you should live in or whether you should only drink drip coffee or the French press or the espresso or whatever thing it is. There's 10,000 things that this isn't talking about. What he's talking about is Jesus. And I think the result of that, that, that we agree that Jesus is Lord and because he's Lord, that affects our life. I want you to all agree. And I want us all to agree, by the way, on that, that Jesus is Lord. In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, you uh, that all of you agree, and there be no divisions among you. Now, this doesn't mean we don't disagree. It means we disagree in love, right? As Christian people, we don't have to agree on everything. We don't have to agree on what time we should meet. We don't have, you know, you might think 1030 is the worst time on the planet to meet, and you want to meet at 9, but guess what? The person sitting next to you thinks 5 p.m. would be the right time for us to meet, uh, you know, we can't do all of those things, right? This isn't, uh, this isn't a, uh, a consumeristic deal. We're just trying to make everybody happy about everything all the time. You know what we agree on? We agree that we should get together every week. We've managed to agree that 1030 is a good time, and so we're here. But this is about much bigger things than that. There'd be no divisions among you. But honestly, as, as you get to know people, you realize when people are caring only about themselves, the divisions can, can really, really, really crop up over time or style or something that just honestly in the, the scope of eternity, frankly, just doesn't actually matter. Um, but it's easy, right? They have bigger problems, and we'll get there. You all agree, and there be no divisions, but that you be united, beautiful word here, in the same mind and same judgment. I think he's talking about the fundamentals of our faith. What do we agree on? We agree that we're sinners saved by grace. What do we agree on? That I don't deserve to be here and neither do you. What do we agree on? That Jesus saves sinners. What do we agree on? That Jesus saves sinners from death to life. What do we agree on? That Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient to pay the price for all of our sins. Every wrong thing you've ever done, every right thing you've done with bad motivation, every good thing you chose not to do, everything you've made more important than Jesus, they are paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. And that we're not just saved from our sin, but we're saved to life in Christ forever. That's what we agree on. That's what we agree on. Favorite color? Who cares? But this is what we agree on. Okay? But here's what they're doing. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people... So Chloe is an influential business lady, and her people have been to Corinth. It's a big trade city. And they said, hey, I, uh, I stopped by the old church in Corinth on Sunday to worship with the brothers and sisters, and it was, it was weird and kind of messed up. And so he says, you know, he told Chloe. Chloe tells them. Now he's talking to them because they need to be talked to about it. It's been told to me by Chloe's people. Well, it sounds like it's actually been told to him by them, not Chloe. Sorry. Uh, that there is coin. You've got to read your Bible slowly. That there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Just that note right there. There's something wrong happening. There's divisions. You're being selfish. You're not taking care of each other, my brothers. He's coming back to this reality that they're in Christ. He doesn't say, there's quarreling among you, and you guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. He says, there's quarreling among you, my brothers. He's got hard words for them but because he loves them and because he thinks of them as family. There's been quarreling among you, my brothers. And then he explains it. 
What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So as you read the letter to the first Corinthians, what you realize is happening here is this is a church that's made up of Jew and Gentile. They say, they're saved in this really powerful, influential city called Corinth. It's a really big city uh, for the time and place, you know, maybe 100,000 people more or more. Like, but, you know, for us, that's what Everett, right? But Everett in first century Rome is giganto. Is that the technical term for it? Giganto? I think so. Giant city, huge trade city, lot of stuff happening there. A lot of philosophy is a religious center. It's a philosophical center. And, and what's happening is that they are approaching their Christian faith like the world. So they're appropriating, they're taking their experience as pagans who don't love Jesus into their life in Christ. Uh, and so that means that they're really, as you read on, they're, they're really leaning on Greek philosophy. They're leaning, leaning on Greek religion to describe spiritual experiences they think they should be having as Christians. Uh, they're, they're leaning on a Greek ethic. Uh, they, what they should do, should and should not do, it comes kind of from their Greek culture. And, and a lot of this, honestly, is they're leaning on a Greek banner. What I mean by that is a Greek. They're doing things the way the world does them. Okay? This thing we are doing is not a commercial enterprise. Right? We have a 501c3 non-for-profit in the state because it's wise and prudential. But you know what we're not doing? We're not selling a product. We're not interested in marketing. Uh, we're not doing things the way the world is doing. And it's a huge trap for churches to fall into because you know what churches want? They want to see people discipled and love Jesus, and they want to see new people come to know the Lord. Um, but we have to be very, very, very careful because what you save people with is what you save people to, right? What you save people with is what you save people to. So if, I mean, this is my experience. My very first experience, real experience with Christianity in high school, a lovely dude who I'm sure just wanted me to love Jesus, said to me, hey man, there's this thing that, that we're doing. Some, some cool kids are going to be there. They're, they're, we're going to play pool. There's fun music. It's called Young Life. And there's just a little bit of Christianity in there. And so what he meant was, why don't you come play pool and hang out with the cool kids? We'll lure you in, and then somebody will tell you about Jesus, and you'll be a Christian. And, and I, I honestly think, and I'm so thankful for that guy to this day, that his whole heart and thinking was that I needed Jesus, and I did, but he thought that that was the way to do it, right? That if he said, why don't you come with me to church, I'd say, you're crazy, but if there's pool and music, wow, it sounds like a pizza parlor where everyone's hanging out and having fun. That's the world's method. These guys are caught in the world's method, too. The love of Greek people is this thing called rhetoric. They love good speaking and good people arguing. And, and, and what happens is these philosophers cook up this stuff, and people say, oh, I'm a, I'm a disciple of Socrates. I'm a disciple of Aristotle. I like Plato. It's my thing. It's my guy. And it's extra super special if there's a living philosopher that you're living under. And that's what they're doing here. So this list is all guys who are teachers in the early church. So what do we have? We have Paul. We have Apollos, who's apparently a just awesome speaker. Everything, every says about Apollos, he's awesome. 
uh, he has to get corrected uh, once or twice because the theology is a little off. But he gets corrected, and he's a great speaker. He's a great teacher. He's the Apollos and Cephas. That's another name for Peter. So that's Jesus' number one disciple. And they say, well, I just follow Christ. So what's probably happening is some people are saying, well, you know, Peter was right there with Jesus. He's who I'm listening to. And people say, well, Paul, Paul had this whole, like, hyper, crazy, awesome, spiritual thing on the Damascus Road. I'm listening to him. And some people say, well, Apollos has the gifts, man. He can talk and he can speak, right? Listen to him talk. His words sound nice. I'm listening to him. And some people say, I follow Christ. So what they're probably saying is they're not listening to those guys. They're only listening to the the direct teaching, what we now have in the Gospels. That's what I listen to. I don't listen to Paul. I don't listen to Apollos. I listen to Jesus. I think we see the same thing today. People say, well, I don't really like Paul. I just read the Gospels. I don't like the Old Testament. I don't like Paul. I just read Jesus. He's so nice. And they're so weird out there. And whenever anybody does that, I actually ask them when, how often they actually read the Gospels because I think Jesus says some of the, uh, in terms of the worldview, crazier and wilder things than anybody else. Uh, I mean, we looked at a bunch of Jesus' sayings last week. Jesus says wild stuff, right? Uh, usually I think people who say that aren't actually reading Jesus or not reading him very carefully, perhaps. I think he's actually... Uh, well, the most intense uh, of the reading in the Bible. But, but nonetheless, they've fall, fallen into this sort of manner, and, and they've fallen into doing things the way the world does them. So let's keep reading. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? It's the apostolic teaching. Peter is his disciple. Paul is his disciple. Apollos is a Gentile who's become his disciple. They're teaching the same truth. And in fact, wherever they're not, you always see a little corrective note. Uh, Paul rebukes Peter at some point in time. Uh, Priscilla and Aquila rebuke Apollos at some point in time, lovingly in in a corrective way to get them back on track. This is a great question. Was Paul crucified for you? No. We live in a digital age. And half of us probably right now are reading our Bible on our phone, and that's great. I, love, I, have a, I like having a Bible in my pocket wherever I go. It's a, great, it's a great thing. Paper Bibles are great, too, but phone Bibles are great, too. No problem, right? But we live in a time and a place where you have in your pocket a little robot, right? And that little robot, you can download John Piper's sermons. You can download Tim Keller's sermons. Uh, you can listen to uh, preachers from everywhere. And I would even encourage you to do that. Proclamation Trust in England, uh, Dick Lucas, and these guys that I had never heard of before we started listening to these guys, and they have, they talk like the bad guys in Bugs Bunny, but they are these amazing preachers. You know, Tim Keller is an amazing preacher. John Piper is an amazing preacher. R.C. Sproul, amazing preacher. Al Mohler, amazing preachers, right? We have access with these little robots we carry around our phone to this stuff. It's a gift. Uh, we live in a time and a place where you just get books to your door. Like you live in Seattle, you can get a book to your door in an hour. You can have someone, you can pay for Audible and someone will read you a book. Utilize all these things to grow in Christ. But when you get attached to one thinker too much, when you read, and by this is what I mean, if you start saying, well, I know you're saying that, but John Piper says this, or I know you're saying that, but J.I. Packer says this. Well, I know you're saying that, but so-and-so says this. You know what I want to know? If you think I'm off on something, I... If, I'm, if you think I'm off or anybody in the church or whatever, you know, some, a friend is off on something, first of all, be very humble how you talk to them. Say things like, well, what do you think about this? Don't say, well, what about this? Just say, well, what do you think about, you know? 
what do you think about John 1? What do, you, what do you think John 1 has to say about what you're saying right now? You can do this in a really loving and kind way. I care way more about what, what the Bible says than what Tim Keller says. And you know what? Tim Keller cares way more about what the Bible says than Tim Keller says, because Tim Keller's a good Bible teacher, right? We want to be people who care about the word and the text. And they're making these divisions. Oh, I'm a, I'm a Paul guy. I'm an Apollos guy. I'm a Cephas guy. I'm a that guy. Were any of those guys crucified for you? You know what the object of our affections are? He who died on the cross for our sins, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we care about. His body broken and blood shed for our sins to make us right with God forever, who gave us life eternal. That's what we care about. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul goes off on this interesting excursus here. I thank God that I baptized none of you except for uh, Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. He's saying that the point of you getting baptized is not who baptized you. It's who you're baptized into. It's not to say some famous dude baptized me. I got baptized by an apostle. Doesn't matter, right? The Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized in a ditch. That's amazing, right? No grandeur, nothing awesome. Baptism is our gift. It's a response to what Jesus has done to us. It's our public proclamation that we belong to him. And you know who it's really, really, really about? The one whose name we're being baptized into, Jesus. When we go down to the beach or we go down to the lake and we put people in the water, it is a celebration that Jesus took sinners and saved them by his grace and it is a public proclamation of the reality of who he is and that we are publicly associated with our Lord. It's about him. He goes on. I did baptize also the house of uh, uh, Stephanus. When you're writing on papyrus with your little ink deal and you, you're Paul and you're, I, I baptize these guys and you're like, oh, I baptize those other guys. You don't start over. You just say, oh, and by the way, I also baptize these guys. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize anyone else. I think what he's really saying here, doesn't matter. Who cares who I baptize? Who cares? It's not about numbers up on the board for me. It's not about me or my namesake. It's not about me and my glory. It's not about you and, and, and having the seal of approval, being baptized by Paul. It's about Jesus. It's about Jesus. We have the joy of getting to baptize people. We have baptized people here. Uh, but it's not something you like put up on the scoreboard, right? It's a gift. It's a gift. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And this is where you might say to yourself, self, what about uh, Matthew 28, the Great Commission? Didn't he say, uh, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit? Didn't, didn't it say that? Isn't that what Paul is supposed to do? And isn't Paul baptizing? Well, yes. But the primary function of a church it is not baptism, it's preaching and the baptism that results from the preaching. Your function as a believer uh, is to go forth and tell people about Jesus. Our main aim is not to convince people to get in some water. Our main aim is to tell people about Jesus. Getting in the water is now an external symbol of what he has done and that you belong to him. But the main thing that he came to do, the main event is to preach the gospel. And he says something crazy here. He says something that, that we don't, I want you to be careful not to think, oh, that's, that's just for those rhetoric-loving 1 Corinthians, but this, or Corinthians, but this is for us too. 
For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. Greeks love wisdom. They love, I mean, we, you still, when I say Aristotle, you know who I'm talking about. Right? The cynics followed a guy. That's what the name comes from. We think about cynics as someone who's just grumpy. But the fact that that's even worked its way into our vernacular, that's representative of a philosophical school in Greek philosophy. Stoic. Have you ever heard someone called a Stoic? Well, he's a Stoic. Also grumpy, right? That was, that was an actual group of people. Aristotle, Plato, Socrates, Stoics, Cynics. These are all words you know. These are all words we're familiar with. This is all leftover. These are vestiges of people who lived thousands of years ago. Wisdom was a big deal for them. But he says, not with wisdom. What? I mean, like, the level of what he's saying here, what they've tried to do is turn Jesus into just another philosophical school. And they've tried to demonstrate how wise Jesus is and how awesome Jesus is and how eloquent their teachers are because they're getting Greek with their thinking. They're getting Hellenistic and Roman with their thinking. And Paul all of a sudden says, no, it's not about the manner. It's not about how I do it. It's about what I say, not how I say it, which is contradictory. I, I don't mean that. You know, Yes, how you say something affects how it is received, but he really means here, it's not about his skill in which he says it. So here is one of my favorite verses. We re refer to it often. Uh, it's so important. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So how would Paul, being eloquent, right? This happens, right? This happens. Well, he's so gifted. He's eloquent. You know, he's great. He's this. She's that. Whatever. We look at people and their skill. She's so bright or he's so smart or whatever we say there, right? We look at that as, as the achievement. And Paul's saying, no. No, if it was about how smart I am, if it was about how gifted I am, if it is about how skilled my rhetorical skill is, then what you've been saved to is my skill, not the message. What you save them with is what you save them to. If you save people with method, if you save people with glitz or glam or eloquence or whatever, here's the scary thing. When that gets taken away, people get blown in the wind. But when you save people to the eternal truth of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, who came into a world that we fundamentally broke, a world that, 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 we, that he made good and we broke, and he came to rescue us and to rescue this world and to save us and to redeem this world for his glory and for our joy so that the object of all of our joy and all of our affection and all of our life would be him and the joy we have in knowing him. That is eternal. That is a rock to build your house upon. And so what he's saying is, I didn't come to be fancy. I didn't come to win the debate. I didn't come so that you would think that I was so uh, well-spoken. I didn't bring a really fancy website, and I didn't come... Uh, you know, with the media blitz. Whatever you want to say there, what do you want to put there, whatever the methods of our day in communication are, because I didn't do that. Now, I think Paul probably was quite eloquent. We're still reading his letters to this day, right? 
But he says this, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, being saved, present tense participle, being saved. Paul talks about this three ways. You have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. He's talking about three things. You have been saved. If you know Jesus, if he is your Lord, if he has bought you by his blood, if you have responded to his grace and mercy, not height nor depth nor powers or principalities could ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can't out the cross. You can't outrun his love. You are his. You belong to him. He is yours and you are his. Thank you, Jesus. Past tense. You have been saved. You're being saved. I think we can all say this, right? I'm being saved. I'm being changed. I am more aware of the presence of God in my life, not because I'm smart or eloquent or anything, but because he is gracious. Uh, He promises in James, if you draw near to him, he will draw near to you. And we spend our lives growing in a love and appreciation for who he is and who he's made us to be. And he's given us new hearts and new lives to be changed and transformed. And my hope is that we're more patient more kind. We have more peace. And as we go through the rough patches in life, and some of us have been through some rough patches, as we travel through those rough patches, God in his grace and mercy uses these hardships to transform us more and more and more, to trust him more and more and more, to be more and more patient, to be more and more loving, to be more and more kind, to believe in the truth of the gospel more and more, to understand that we're in his grasp more and more, that we're being changed. That's what it is to, that we're being saved, right? That's the present tense. We're being saved, right? So it has a real effect now, right? You don't just hear about the cross once, and then we say, okay, did you hear about the cross? Did we baptize you and you're Christian? Now let's talk about the good news of how Proverbs can help you balance your checkbook, or 10 steps to a happier life uh, at work, or, or whatever thing that it is, but that we come in day in and day out as this church preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ day in and day out. Why? For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but those of us, oh, those of us, us, me, you, me, you, us, for those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The reality of Jesus is the power of God in our lives. Uh, go with me just a little bit over, and we're in 1 Corinthians still, but in chapter 2, verse 14. This is what Paul says to them. Because they're acting like natural people. They're acting like worldly people. They're still having this worldly view. They're still understanding the world through these Greek and Roman lenses and eyes, these Hellenistic eyes. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. The things of God can be explained away. You can use logic to get rid of them. You can defeat them with arguments or whatever that might be, whatever a person thinks he can do. And he is not able to understand them because they are, spir- they are not, uh, because they are spiritually discerned. The truth of God, the Spirit moves in our lives, opens our eyes so that we can understand the truth. Does this mean that a non-Christian person cannot open the text of the Bible and, and, and do a sentence diagram on the words? Well, but, brothers, there's a comma, a comma, a conjunction, there's this. 
Does this mean that someone who doesn't know who Jesus is can't look at this and say, well, I know what it means. It sounds like it's saying that everybody's a sinner and they need to be saved by Jesus and he's the only way. Poppycock, right? It's not that they don't understand it. It's that they don't understand it. Right? Balderdash. It's not that they don't understand it. It's they don't understand it. And what do I mean by that? I mean, they don't, they don't understand who Jesus actually is or what he has actually done. Because if they could see for just a moment uh, who they are and what he has done on their behalf to save them, of course they would follow him. But the problem is we don't think we need him. We don't need a savior when we think of things in our own strength, in our own life. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are folly to him. They're foolishness. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person, someone who's walking in Christ in the Spirit of God, the spiritual person judges all things but is himself not, is not judged by no one. This is not your verse to have someone not, to tell, not tell you when your life is going off the rails, right? We love to say this, right? We love to point to when Jesus said, well, you've got to take the splinter out of your own eye first. Well, yeah, you know what Jesus has us do? You've got the plank, I've got the speck. I need to repent. I need to repent of my sin. I need to turn to Christ. I need to deal with my own junk first. But you got a big plank in your eye. It's my job to help you. You got a plank. I only got a speck. I got to deal with my speck, but then you got your plank, and I got to help you, or, or vice versa, right? Uh, that's not what it means. It, it means that we're not judging things in this worldly way. For who has understand the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. So we're, we're listening to the Bible. We're listening to Jesus. We're listening to the text. We don't need the world and people who don't love Jesus to tell us how to read the Bible. We don't need people who don't love Jesus to tell us how to respond to the text or to live it out. And the way we live in response to this text, other-centered, loving uh, uh, self-giving life makes no sense to a dog-eat-dog survival of the fittest world. You will never get anywhere being generous and kind to people till it hurts. You're right, I will not get anywhere in the world being self-deprecating. Uh, I will not get anywhere in the world uh, being, uh, you know, setting aside my own preferences. You're right, I will not climb the corporate Ladder. I will not get anywhere loving other people more than I love myself, being more patient with people than uh, the world thinks they deserve because God has been vastly more patient with, than me, with me than I deserve, uh, being more forgiving and, and more kind uh, than is really practical. Right? That doesn't make any sense to the world. The Christian faith doesn't make sense to the world. The gospel and our response to it doesn't make sense to the world, but we don't need the world to tell us how to do life. I worked at a restaurant in Fremont and, uh, you know, loved the people I worked with. No Christians there whatsoever. But they would give me, like, dating advice and practical advice and life advice. And they just thought I was nuts. I said, I'm, I'm going to go with the word on this. I went with the word and Jesus has continued to be faithful, right? Well, let's dig back in. So, for the word... The cross is folly to those who are perishing, but those who are being saved is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. This is Isaiah 29, 14. God's wisdom is amazing, and it's different than the world's. 
Verse 20. Uh, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of the, the age? So these are all important people. The scribe is the guy who's litigious. He follows the law. He knows books. He knows writing. Uh, in the Gospels, in Jewish culture, this is the guy, who, the guy whose job it is to copy the, the, the Torah and the, and the law and, and all these different things to, to, to write. Uh, to, he's a copyist a lot of times, copying what the Bible says into other copies. He knows it well. He can speak into it well. Uh, but in Greek culture, he's the guy who's copying Plato and, and thinking well and knows, knows his stuff. Where's the wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of the sage? The, the, the guy who can do a good debate. So, you know, you can, you can supply our own words here. You know, where is the, where's the politician? Where is the PhD? Where is the entrepreneur? Uh, where is the whatever, whatever, whatever? Whatever we think highly of, whoever we think, where's the expert? Where's the guy with credentials? Where's the person who knows their stuff? Has not God made, the, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Knowing math will not get you to Jesus. There's hope for those of us who don't remember how to do algebra. Algebra is not what gets you in Christ. Neither is knowing anything about the Ottoman Empire or uh, being in an engineering program or how much History Channel you watch. There used to be history on the History Channel. That doesn't make as much sense anymore. Obviously, watching the History Channel won't get you there now. But the world's methods don't get you there. Jesus is not the logical conclusion in the world's eyes to understanding Shakespeare or Judge Judy or, or whatever it might be, right? No, it's something more. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What does he mean by the folly? that we preach 2,000 years ago. A Galilean peasant preacher born to a woman out of wedlock, blue-collar carpenter, walked the earth, came, born of a virgin, lived the life I should have lived, died on the cross to pay the price for sins I can't pay back no matter how hard I try or how many food drives I do, or how much money I make, or how much stuff I have for the sins that I've committed, not just against people, but against God, to make me right with God, to, to make me known to God, to, to make God known to me, who rose from the dead three days later. He rose from the dead never to die again. He's ruling and reigning from heaven. He's going to return to restore this world the way it's supposed to be. Now, for those who don't understand that, Honestly, what is that? And yet, I remember being someone who didn't believe that and hearing that and having my heart awakened to the reality that God was real and I had sinned against him and I needed a savior and his name was Jesus. That is the message we preach. Greek and Roman thinking, the Hellenistic world. The Romans are in charge, but they're in charge over all this area that's Greek. Thought the idea of the resurrection was crazy. You know what they thought was crazier was the cross. The cross is where insurrectionists go to die. 
where people who have rebelled against Rome go to die. If you die on a cross, that means you're not the king. Caesar is. Well, he's the emperor, but you know what I mean. When these people say something different, when they say Jesus is king, well, if Jesus is king, then Caesar isn't. You mean the guy who died on the cross and rose from the dead? Yeah. My God is real. He is true. He is Christ. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. It pleased God to not save people with methods or eloquence or show or glitz or glam, but with the truth of who he is, humble, present preacher who died in the place of sinners to save them to eternal life. The reason this doesn't make sense is what's called the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. The theology of glory is this idea of triumph. The winner's you know, President Eisenhower, why does Ike get to be the president? Because Ike won World War II. Ike knows at this point in time, if you don't know your presidential history, Ike knows that if he runs for president, he gets to be the president. Why? He won World War II. In Europe and in Asia, he won the war. He was in charge of the Allied forces. He was the guy. That's the theology of glory. The strongest, the biggest, the smartest. We celebrate these things. This is the theology of the world. What's smarter, faster, cleverer, more clever, wiser, this is what is to be cherished. This is what to be valued. Uh, it is the opposite of Isaiah 53. We despised him and we knew him not. The theology of the cross says that we have a God who is mighty, glorious, triumph, and will return. But he himself chose to set aside all of that. He set aside his divine rights. He set aside his divine power. Really, 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 really was a human being. Was made like his brothers in every way but knew no sin. That means he can relate to you in every struggle and every strife and everything you deal with because he didn't come as Superman. He's not Clark Kent. He's not Superman under some white robes, right? He always wears white robes in the story Bibles so that you know which one's Jesus, but his robes weren't white. He was a carpenter, right? Walking around for three years. Not white robes, probably dirty robes, but regardless. It's not like he removes the tunic to have the big J on his chest. He's super Jesus. Here he goes. He set all that aside. He lives a spirit and power life. That's how he does the miracles. That's how he does everything. By the work of the spirit, through him as a human being, God came here like that, gave of himself, which means for us who believe, our response is not to get in the dog pile. Our response is not that we deserve anything. It's that we deserve nothing and everything is a gift. Uh, our, our response is not to play survival of the fittest, but to give of ourselves. Our response is not to be uh, road ragey, but to be patient and kind. They're honking. It's Seattle. We love to honk the horn. The, the light is, they can just feel that the light's turning green, and they honk the horn these days. We never did that 15 years ago. You sit at the light, it turns green, it turns red, and they patiently wait, and then you go. That's how we used to live. It's not how we live anymore in Seattle. We honk the horn. But it's like getting out of your car and going to talk to them about Seattle, proper Seattle etiquette. We're patient. We're calm. We've got an eternity in view. It's not just having eternity in view when we're here and we're singing songs to Jesus. It's having eternity in view. It's having the gospel in view at work. On your 15-minute lunch break. Everything you do with that robot that lives in your pocket. 
how you spend your time in the afternoons, how, how you love your friends, how you love your family, how you serve your children, how, you involve, how you're involved in their school or the playground, how you're involved in your school. All of these things are lived both in view of eternity, that God is redeeming all things, and that God came as a baby, not an accident. Why didn't he just come as a grown man? He came in humble estate. So if we have God who had everything, our response then is to take this on, to take on this humble spirit, because we've been saved by a humble God, by Jesus Christ himself. Now, the thing about this is that this is folly to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. The folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Why? He could have done it differently. He could have done it in a more fanciful way. He could have done it in a more glorious way. He could have done so in a more attractive way to the world. But he didn't. If God had done that, if he just appeared, grown man to the world, and said, here I am, and whatever, then we'd say, well, yeah, of course, that's a logical decision. All the smart people love Jesus. All the right people love Jesus. All the wise people love Jesus. Then is it about him or about you? The wise people and the smart people. It's not. He came in folly, so it's clear when you and I are saved, when you and I are put in the family of God. Not because you're smart or not. Not because you're wise or not. Because you're strong or not or fast or not or whatever. It's because he is great and merciful. That is his gift and his doing. So when people look at you and your life, they say, well, how is that guy a Christian? Jesus. Well, how does that guy belong to him? Jesus. They've lost all that. The Corinthians have forgotten all this, and if we're not careful, we do too. What saves people is Jesus. Who saves people is Jesus. What we're about is Jesus. What we're about is his gospel. And we see it through this lens of the cross. Humility, patience, kindness, patience, Twice patience through the joy that we have in Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves, do we see reality through this lens or through the world's lens? Is the gospel an addendum on what we, how we see the world and how the world, re- well, you know how the world really is. You know how people really are. You know what you really need to do to survive here in Seattle? Well, I know what the world thinks, but I'm formed differently. The Corinthians needed their worldview adjusted. Is your life and your views and the seconds and the moments and the minutia of your day tuned around the reality of a Savior who lived, died, and who rose from the dead and who is coming back to vindicate the righteous? Is your life tuned around that? And here's the thing. So the solution to this problem that we have when our life is tuned to something other than Jesus is not saying, okay, so the world is survival of the fittest. Stop being survival of the fittest. Uh, the world is irritable. Stop being irritable. Uh, The world is uh, the opposite of patient. I guess that's irritable. When we pick the thing, we say, well, this is what we don't want to do, and we put our mind on not being that thing. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Don't be angry. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Our whole life is pushing against the thing we're trying not to do. Christ has actually given us a way better way out. Instead of saying, uh, you know, don't be irritable, don't be irritable, don't be irritable. We stop and we set our minds on Christ who's patient. And when I feel irritable, I don't say, don't be irritable, don't 
say, what has Christ done for me? When, when we're bitter and we can't forgive, what do I have in Christ? How has Christ forgiven me? Uh, when someone cuts us off and you say, where's a cop when you need one? You don't stop and think about how you're being irritable. The, God's going to vindicate the righteous. And, and, and in all these things, our response is not to think about what we don't do, but who, what he has done. And in doing this, we just seek to have the reality of the world and the reality of the gospel and the reality of eternity and the reality of who he is and what he's done and the reality of the universe supplant our worldview and, and displace the worldview that we've adopted from the world, that we've come out of in the world. And again and again and again, day in and day out, we just say, well, what is, who is Jesus? What is the gospel? And, and how do I let that reality wash out the systems? I'm going to pray for us. Before that, I'll, I'll set up communion here. Uh, on the far side, we have gluten-free. Middle is regular bread. We have juice and wine according to your conscience. And I ask for the offering of the ministry. This is, this is for Christian people. If, if you became a Christian today, this is, this is for you. Uh, we take this as a public proclamation of who Jesus is. And if you don't know who Jesus is, this is who Jesus is. Savior who died on the cross. You say, well, I don't want to live for the world. I want to live for that guy. I want to, I want to know this God. I want, I want to love this God. Well, what do I do? Just as I said, you turn from your sin and you turn to him. You, you Just right now, you say, I'm sorry. You receive Christ. You receive his love. You receive his grace. You receive his mercy. You become his. He, he becomes yours. And you, becomes, you have to clean your life up or, or, or make some out, outside show. It's about Jesus changing who you are and receiving his love. This is for those of us who have had that experience. This is our public proclamation of his death, burial, and resurrection, specifically his cross, his body broken and blood shed for us. We do this as a public proclamation of that truth that we've been washed clean from our sin because of his sacrifice on the cross. So when we do this, we take a moment to consider in our seats uh, or wherever our sin, and we turn from our sin and we turn from him, and we stand up and we take this in victory because we're forgiven, blood-bought people who, who belong the lamb who died, God himself, Jesus Christ. I will pray for us, and when you're ready, please come on up, and we'll sing songs to the Lord together. Uh, King Jesus, we do thank you uh, for your mercy. I thank you that you're the one who's in charge. You're the one who's in control. Uh, you're the one who, who we want to know about, who we want to learn from. Uh, teach us. We want your wisdom, not the world's wisdom. I pray that we would be unashamed and unafraid to embrace what the world or our friends or our family or our coworkers think is foolishness or folly, but we'd embrace the truth of your cross. Uh, we'd embrace the truth of patience and peace and kindness and grace and mercy, and that that which you've extended to us, we'd extend to others, and that our life would be a life turning to you in patience. And, and forgive us, Lord, for our for everywhere we've had a different theology than a theology of the cross and help us just to continue to be shaped and reformed by the reality of your cross and of your resurrection. Jesus, we love you and pray these things for your glory and for our joy in your name. Jesus Christ, amen.